Okay, a formal welcome to our brand new course, Curious Tales of the Talmud. And if you like storytelling, if you like, if you're intrigued by the notion of Talmud study, if you are into solving puzzles and riddles and mysteries, you have found the right course. Marjan, welcome. It is great to see you. All right, here's the deal. Here's the deal. They tell a story about a young man who becomes engaged to a young woman. And the young man, known in Hebrew as the Chatan, the groom, is meeting for the first time his bride's father, so his future father-in-law. And as, uh, as is known for some father-in-laws to do, they, or father-in-laws to be to do, that he was grilling his future son-in-law. He asked him the question, he says, so tell me, so what do you do? He says, the, the young man says, I study Torah. Okay, good, study Torah, good. What, what do you do for, for, for money? No, I said I just study Torah. How do you plan on, 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 uh, on buying and affording an engagement ring? He says, God will provide. Okay, okay. Um, and tell me, how are you planning on uh, paying for a mortgage, buying a house? God will provide. Okay, and what about the kids? You'll have kids, please God, one day, and you have to provide an education. What's the plan? God will provide, says the young man. Okay, he walks out. He meets his the father, future father-in-law, meets his wife, the future mother-in-law. She says, so you met with the young man, so what do you think? He says, eh, I don't know. He doesn't seem, uh, he doesn't seem to have much of a plan, but at least he thinks I'm God. I muted everybody and I regret it because now I can't hear the, uh, the, the, the uproarious laughter, which I'm sure was right there. All right. Another joke. Another joke. This, uh, this woman goes over to the rabbi after, after services. Thank you. Thank you, Ariel. This woman goes over to the rabbi after services and she says, I must apologize for my husband for, um, for walking out in the middle of the sermon. The, 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 the rabbi says, okay, listen, you know, it's, uh, it happens. She says, yeah, David's been, uh, ever since he was young, he's been sleepwalking. Listen, my friends, yeah, that just happened. Jerry, where the, no, nothing? It's there. The rim shot, okay. I didn't hear it. Do, do one more for the crowd. There, I heard that one. Good, thank you. All right, my friends, okay. let's jump into Curious Tales of the Talmud. By the way, what I do in telling a joke and kind of, you know, getting everybody a little bit warmed up, hopefully warmed up, or at the very least angry at me for telling a bad joke, is following the Talmud's advice. The Talmud says that Rabbah, before Rabbah, the great sage Rabbah began teaching, he used to open with a joke. And you might think to yourself, opens with a joke? What a waste of time. Right? What a waste of time. No. The milsa de bidichusa, which is the, the, the humorous remark, actually serves to open up and engage. And thus, hopefully... We are connected also through humor right now, or through attempts at humor, as we begin. So, this course is studying Talmud, but it's very different than your typical Talmud course. Many millions of people, this is not an exaggeration, millions upon millions of people have studied Talmud in the 1700 years or so since it's being recorded. But few have embarked on the most audacious mission 
to decode its mysterious passages um, that are contained inside the Talmud. To my knowledge, this course goes boldly where courses prior have not gone before, to paraphrase uh, some other, some other um, uh, forms of pop culture. This course goes where other courses have not gone before to jump, exactly, to jump into an area of scholarship that is too often neglected. Most Talmud courses study the technical parts of Talmud, the legal parts of Talmud. This course is about the stories of the Talmud, but more precisely, the most bizarre, puzzling, enigmatic, seemingly silly or just fantastical tales woven by the Talmudic sages. Our goal is to study them, explore them, decipher them, and draw from them incredible nuggets of wisdom. Trust me, you are in for a real treat. In today's class, we will meet a true man of adventure, a sage, a rabbi, who battled mythical sea creatures, survived a raging storm with fiery waves, and who vanquished ancient desert nomads who were giants and who were dead. My friends, we are going to encounter, yeah, if none of this makes sense, that's kind of the point because this will make sense by the end of tonight's class. We are going to look at some of the most bizarre stories of the Talmud and extract incredible wisdom. But before we do that, let me give you a working definition of what the Talmud is, because I know that some of you, although some of you, many of you have studied Talmud before, for some of you perhaps, this is your first Talmud experience, but even more, I would say even more importantly, even if you studied Talmud before, it's possible that the context of what Talmud is and what it's about maybe was, uh, maybe, you know, maybe you don't, maybe you're not aware of exactly what the Talmud is and, uh, and, and, and the context of what it teaches. So the Talmud, in short, is the greatest repository, the greatest collection of Jewish wisdom and Jewish law. It is the seat of the oral Torah, the vast body of commentary, explanation, and details that accompany the written biblical text, known as, of course, the Torah or the five books of Moses. So what we have essentially are two bodies of Torah. There is the written Torah and the oral Torah. The written Torah is the Torah that Moses wrote down 3,300 years ago. The oral Torah are all of the explanations, all of the details, all of the accompanying laws that were not originally written down. Now, why weren't they written down? We've had courses on this, six-week courses to explain the progression, evolution of Torah and, and the oral tradition. So I'm going to try to do this in 60 seconds, 90 seconds. So forgive me for not doing a thorough, thorough job on this. But essentially, originally, it was the divine vision that only the, the, um, the notes, only the bullet points, if you will, be written down in the Torah. Everything else should be verbally communicated, parent to child, teacher to student, from generation to generation. What's the benefit of that? Well, it encourages conversation, intergenerational conversation. If everything is in the books, we, have, we don't need a conversation because if you have a question, you just go to the bookshelf. But if not everything is in the book, if the only way you're going to get in the information is by having a conversation, guess what? What does that encourage? You guessed it. 
conversation. By the way, at this point, you can feel free to unmute and chime in um, as we do this uh, chant and repeat type uh, sermonic experience. I'm joking about that, but not joking about unmuting. So, you know, the Talmud was the first time, essentially, the mission of the Talmud, the first time when the oral law, all of those other details, all of the explanations, all of the, you know, um, uh, additional info was put down, pen to paper, written and preserved for all time. The reason why it was done at a certain point, even though the intention was originally for it to be verbally transmitted, is because it was the time following the Second Temple's destruction. The Jewish people were being dispersed throughout the world. Communication wasn't great. This is before WhatsApp. And so, um, can you imagine a time before WhatsApp? Crazy times. And so you can imagine that not writing it down will put the entire body of Judaism, of Jewish practice, at risk. So the great Rabbi Yudah Anasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince, took it upon himself to compile the Mishnah, upon which is layered the Talmud and the commentaries, etc. The rest is history. So the Talmud contains all of the details of all of the laws and all of the explanations of all of the laws that are in Torah. But it also contains lots of discussion and debate. Because as many laws as we were given, there are more laws and more cases that come up due to the course of time, right? So, for example, a, 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 um, a topic that is a favorite topic of mine when discussing these things, and some of you have taken classes with me on this, the notion of lab-grown beef, right? Lab-grown beef taken from stem cells of an animal, right? So what is the status? Is it considered to be meat or is it? in halakhic parlance known as parav. Is it a neutral status? Is it meat or is it not meat? Right? It's not meat. It's taken from stem cells. Well, what's the status of a stem cell? Anyway, these are things. These are topics, obviously, stem cell, um, lab-grown beef that simply weren't around in the times of Moses. This is something. I'm giving you an example of a similar type of topic that the Talmud would need to address and the sages would need to decipher from the original law. So you take original law, and I have new cases, and you're trying to apply the original formula to new cases. This could bring out, this definitely brings out discussion, and it also sometimes leads to debate, which is why there's so much debate in the Talmud based on cases that weren't specifically taught originally. New cases, and now it's about applying the law. Well, when it comes to applying the law, two Jews, three opinions, Hence the Talmudic discourse. So I'm just giving you a quick overview kind of what the Talmud does. It explains the laws, gives backgrounds to the laws, and of course, there are new laws that are discussed and debated and fleshed out. The Talmud is a central pillar of Judaism. I want to share my screen with you. We're going to jump into text number one from Rabbi Steinsaltz of Blessed Memory, who just recently passed. Take a look at your screens as I pull up. The relevant text. Okay, let's begin. Jerry, um, please read text number one. Don't forget to unmute. Yeah. Am I unmuted? Okay. You're good. If the Bible is the cornerstone of Judaism, and the Talmud is the central pillar, soaring up from the foundations and supporting the entire spiritual and intellectual edifice. In many ways, the Talmud is the most important book in Jewish culture, the backbone of creativity and national life. No other work has had a comparable influence in the theory and practice of Jewish life. Though based on the principles of tradition and transmission of authority from generation to generation, it is unparalleled in its eagerness to question and re-examine convention and accepted views to root out underlying... 
Yeah, so the Talmud is vigorous, intellectually vigorous. No stone is unturned. If you've ever studied, if you've ever had the good fortune, I should say, of studying Talmud, you know that these rabbis did not pull any punches. They were not hesitant at all to question logically the foundation of laws, to understand the core of why is this law the way it is? Why isn't it differently? Everything that... Let me put it this way. You think you have questions. Oh boy, just open up a page of Talmud. You will see questions. You will see. And the Talmud sharpens the mind. So now, when people typically study the Talmud, they study the, the, the legal parts of the Talmud. However, and this is the big point for tonight's, for this course, there is another element to the Talmud, aside from its piercing legal analysis and debate. And that is what's called the Agada. Agada, not Haggadah, like Passover, the Agada, And it appears right next to the halachic, the legal discussion, in the same volume, in the same page, in the same primary text, as the law comes the Agada. What is the Agada? The Agada refers to any Talmudic discussion that is not legalistic in nature. It could be ethical teachings, anecdotes about biblical figures, historical vignettes, etc. And included in the Agadah are stories and tales, some of which are outlandish, zany, and baffling. In fact, calling it curious, which we're doing in our course, Curious Tales of the Talmud, is actually a huge understatement for some of these stories. This is what this course explores. The zaniest, most outlandish stories of the Talmud. So today I want to introduce you to a third century Talmudic sage. His name was Rabbah Bar Bar Chana, which is really Rabbah, that was Rabbah, the son of the son of Chana. He was Chana's grandson. Chana was his grandmother. He was called Rabbah, the son of the son of Chana. And this Rabbah Bar Bar Chana, I'm just using his Hebrew name, Rabbah Bar Bar Chana, is known throughout the Talmud as a very colorful storyteller. He spins over a dozen tales of adventure and intrigue that's down, that sounds straight out of mythical lore and legend. I want to highlight three such stories that we're going to focus on tonight. As I read these stories, actually, I'll have you guys read these stories. As we read these stories, I want you to pay attention to see just how Bizarre and out there these stories are. All right, here we go. I'm sharing my screen with you once again. Let's begin with tale number one. Okay, um, Richard, if you're up to it, Richard, please read uh, text uh, tale number one as you unmute. Yes. I was told by seafarers the wave that sinks a ship appears, appears to have a fringe of white fire at its crest. The wave subsides when stricken with a club on which is engraved the words, I shall be what I shall be, God the Lord of hosts. Amen, amen, salah. All right, my friends, if you can make sense of this, you are a better scholar than I am. Well, okay, listen, we're, gonna, we're all going to understand this by the end of tonight's class. But my point is, at first blush, this story is... Totally, so bizarre. Listen, so Rabbi Barachana is sitting around the bar. I'm kidding, but he's sitting around saying, seafarers told me the wave that sinks a ship appears to have a fringe of white fire at its crest. And how do you, how does the wave subside when you strike it with a club? 
on which is engraved the words, I shall be what I shall be, God, the Lord of hosts, amen, amen, selah. I, I, listen, in Atlanta, we don't live on the ocean, right? So waves are not really that popular in Atlanta. We don't really have you know, that many waves that hit. You know, California, Santa Barbara, is that on the coast? It is on the coast, right? Yeah. Yes? All right. Yes. So Jules is like, yeah, bro, I got that club. I got that club. I got two of them. I got one in each car, right? Not the club. That's something else. Um, right, but like, yeah, I got, I got that. I got the club that beating back some like, you know, errant waves when they're messing up my surf. I mean, really, Rabbi Barachana, what are you talking about? The wave, the crest, the white fire, you beat it back with a stick that says I will be what I will be. What are you talking about? This is just one story. And I'm not going to explain the story yet because that's what we're going to go through tonight. But that's tale number one. We're going to cover three tales tonight. Let's do tale number two, and you'll see again. Bizarre Nate, how's it going? Fran, good to see you guys. Hey, welcome. Live from Vegas. Good to see you guys. All right, so let's jump back in. Let's take a look at tale number two. This is story time. It's story time at this class. All right, so let's, let's do this together. Um, uh, let me share my screen, jump back in. All right, let's ask... Let's ask, oh, Jules, if you don't mind, jump in on this one. Sure. We'll go from, okay. yeah. We were once traveling on board a ship and saw a fish whose back was covered with sand out of which grew grass, uh, which grass grew. Thinking it was an island of dry land, we disembarked and baked and cooked upon it. When the fish's back became hot from the heat of the fire, it turned over. Had not our ship been nearby, we would have drowned. Okay, so now this is also Rabbi Barachana. And he's like, again, I just picture him around the bar, you know, they're saying L'chaim, and he's like, yeah, I was once on a ship, and we got off on an island. There was grass, there was sand. We, we were barbecuing, throwing back some, uh, some Bud Lights or whatever. And the next thing you know, it flipped us over because it wasn't an island, it was a fish. And you're like, whoa, really? That's the sto that's the story. You that's the story. I mean, listen. How many we've all heard of the the tales of you know the guys who go fishing and come back like oh it was this big it was like I caught a whale it was amazing. You know the guy just got swallowed by a whale or something. It's got it's called fish tale. Yeah, a fish exactly right. But wait, but you know this guy right? This guy just got swallowed by a fish. Yeah, Massachusetts. Yeah. Massachusetts. Yeah. Apparently his his Hebrew name is Jonah. Anyway, back to our story. Back, I know, all right, I'm here all week. Back to our story. So, look, you know, he's saying, we got off, we were barbecuing, and then, the, and then it flipped over. It wasn't an island. It turns out it was a fish. Really? You want to tell me you caught a big fish, you're exaggerating, that's one thing. But that an island flipped over because it was a fish? I don't know about that one. That's going to be a bit of a harder sell. All right, let's look at tale number three. And you'll see, again, we're picking the zaniest stories, the most bizarre stories of the Talmud. Story number three is coming at you right now. Here we go. Tale number, oh, this, is, this takes the cake. This takes the cake. All right. Um, Dr. Maxi, please jump in on this one. Tale number three. We were once traveling in a desert accompanied by an Arab merchant. He said to me, come and I will show you the dead of the wilderness. I went and saw them. They looked as if they were intoxicated as they rested on their backs. 
The knee of one of them was raised, and the merchant passed beneath the knee while riding on a camel with his spear held upright, yet he did not touch it. I cut off the tzitzit corner from the garment of one of them, and lo and behold, we could not go. The merchant said to me, if you have, peradventure, taken something from them, return it. We have a tradition that one who takes anything from them cannot move away. I went and returned it, and we were able to move away. Okay, uh, my friends, I defy you to make any sense of this one. This one takes the cake. Come on. This one is the most out there. All right, let me just break this down. So, Rabbi Barbachana, same guy, same rabbi. We were once traveling in a desert. There's this air merchant. Let me show you the dead of the wilderness, okay? And they looked intoxicated on their backs. By the way, they were giants because the knee of them, of one of them was raised. The merchant went on a camel, mind you. He's on a camel with his spear held upright, yet he does not graze the bottom of said dead desert giant's knee that is bent. Okay, are you with me on this? I think you guys are with me on this. That's what's going on. The, the rabbi then cuts off the fringes, the corners, the tzitzit corner from the garment, and then they can't move because obviously when you cut off the tzitzit corner of dead desert giant, sleeping desert, intoxicated desert giant, you, kill, you can no longer move. Then he gave it back and they were able to move. Okay, all right, my friends, my friends. Now, look, if you were studying Talmud and you encountered this, you'd be like, you'd raise eyebrows. Maybe one, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm closing an eye. I'm not sure exactly what I'm doing with my face. But, right, you'd raise an eyebrow, you'd raise two eyebrows, you'd raise three eyebrows, you'd be like, I have no more eyebrows to raise, but I need to raise someone else's eyebrows because this doesn't make any sense. What is going on here? What are we to make of these stories? You know, the Talmud is a very intellectual book. You study the Talmud, I'm telling you, study the Talmud, the halakhic part, the legal parts of it, you, your mind will be hurt in a good way. It's challenged. Talmud is stretching. The brain, you study Talmud, you can go to law school. Can, C-A-N, no T. You can go to law school from Talmud study. That's the truth. Because Talmud sharpens the brain. It's unbelievable. And in the same work, on the same page, you have a story about dead desert giants that are intoxicated with uh, some merchants going on a camel with a spear held upright just for kicks to see if it's going to go through. That's what's going And then the guy takes, oh, let me grab a souvenir from these intoxicated dead desert giants. Let me cut the corner of their tzitzit garment because no big deal. Whoa, now I'm frozen. I can't move. You ever have that situation where you're in the, um, you know, what I'm you, 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 half of you know what I'm talking about right now. The shopping cart and you get out of their little perimeter and suddenly you, your wheels lock. You know what I'm talking about, right? And you're like, Man, I just need to get to my car. This is awkward. Now I have to carry about five cases of LaCroix. Did I mention that there's a lot of seltzer that goes down in this house? I'm just saying, those things are heavy when you carry them. You know, marshmallows are one thing, but four or five cases of that thing, it's going to wear you down when your cart is stopped. So what? They cut the tzitzit corner, activates the freeze, the, uh, the magnetic lock. Now you can't move? What is this? Like, what, are we stuck now? I don't mind holding this position for a little while. But here's the point. How do you make sense of an otherwise very intellectual book just seemingly spinning out of control with these stories? Um, in fact, 
the question becomes more troubling when we think about who the sages were. They were the greatest, I was about to say giants, but not to mix uh, metaphors and stories here, but they were the greatest of the great. These were the greatest geniuses. They were intellectual and spiritual giants, masters of every letter of Torah. They knew Torah backwards and forwards, the entire 24 books of Torah, not just the five books of Moses. The prophets, the scriptures, they knew everything in the back, like the back of their hands. They had razor-sharp analysis, piercing logic. These were the most intellectually vigorous people you'd ever meet. And those that have studied Talmud can attest to this firsthand. And yet, these same Talmudic sages, who were all about logic and sound analysis, composed tales that seemed completely outlandish and silly. It's hard to understand. Furthermore, even if you want to say, you know what, maybe the rabbis, after a long day's work of academic banter and debate, maybe they just needed an outlet. Maybe they just needed to talk some Baba Mises. Okay, why put it in the Talmud? Why publish it in the Book of Law? Even if you told me that they like to kick back and weave fantastical tales for whatever reason, which I would still question, by the way, but why publish it? Why publish it in your work of guidance of Jewish law? My friends, know that I am not the first one to ask this question. This has been wondered about. People have wondered this ever since the first editions of the Talmud saw the day of the light of day. In fact, not only have Talmud scholars puzzled over this, this has been fodder for the scoffers and anti-Semites, Jew haters throughout history. And I want to share with you a transcript. This is very powerful, very troubling actually, but very poignant in right now in our discussion. Well, I'm going to share with you in a moment a transcript from a forced debate between a rabbi and a Christian scholar presided over by the king of Portugal, King Alfonso V, in the late 1400s. And I'm going to share this text with you. Take a, take a quick look. Take a quick look over here. Let me get my screen share going. Boom. Text number... Text number two. Here we go. Text number two. Um, let's ask... Let's ask... Um, hold on. Let's get Jay. Are you up to it? Complete the, uh, the family triangle. Sure. Awesome. Okay, so text, let's do this. Text number two, and this is, the, this is King Alfonso in his, in his debate after hearing good arguments put forth by the rabbi. This is what the king says. The king said, there are refutations for all your arguments. I will get to them later on. First, however, I must say that because it is your nation's custom to make false and meaningless statements, you are all legitimately to be regarded as uh, prevaricators. For example, I once heard in the course of a debate that your Talmud speaks of a gargantuan frog the size of 60 houses. This frog was swallowed by a sea monster, which was then swallowed by a raven, which was then hopped onto a tree branch. This is a clear and verified falsehood. Further, 
The Talmud states that an axe once fell into the ocean and it descended for seven years and still did not land on the seabed. Now, which person was able to see the, to the depths of the ocean to establish whether it landed on the floor or not? Big stuff. Further, the Talmud states that a Jewish sage saw the raging waves of the sea and that each wave was separated from the next by a distance of 400 parcel. This is a canard, canard. That, that entire sea does not contain a distance of 400 parcel. This is from Rabbi Shlomo Ibn Verga. You see his bio on the side. He, he lived from 1450 to 1520. He wrote a book called Shevi Yehuda. And this fellow wrote a transcript of the debate presided over by the king of Portugal, by King Alfonso V. And the king says to the rabbi, Rabbi, you defend Judaism nicely, but I need to tell you something. I don't trust you. I don't trust you because look at your own Talmud. Frogs? 60 houses swallowed by a sea monster? Swallowed by a raven hopping onto a tree branch? Are you kidding me? An axe fell into the ocean, descending for seven years. Are you out of your mind? The waves, a distance of each between one wave and the next distance of 400 paras. So each paras is about two and a half miles. So we're talking about two and a half times 400. It's about a thousand miles between each wave. Are you kidding me? He says, I don't trust you. What my point is, is that the stories, these outland, seemingly outlandish stories of the Talmud, seem to, number one, not be understandable. What do they mean? Not, ma not make sense based on who the rabbis were who told these stories. Not make sense to be published in the Talmud. F and, and finally, as if the cherry, on the cherry, on, cherry on, the, uh, on the cake is that it has, unfortunately, been misinterpreted or has hurt the Jewish people, has hurt our people by those who seek to use it as uh, to further their claim that the Talmud is a bunch of Baba Mises, that Judaism, etc., is as well, and that it is not to be taken seriously. So the question is, what are we to make of these extremely strange Talmudic tales? Why would they put them in? What do they mean? What are the rabbis thinking? What, just what is going on? So I want to share with you a perspective. And this is going to be the first big idea of this course. This is a... When I say big idea, this is capital B-I-G-I-D-E-A. This is like big, big, big idea. And without this idea, we might as well not continue. So this is the big idea, the first big idea of this course. And that is, you have to know how to read a story. You have to know how to read a story. Maimonides talks about the stories of the Talmud. We love Maimonides. Right, the great scholar, physician, academic, right, halachic codifier, codifier of Jewish law, my philosopher, astronomer, Maimonides talks about the stories of the Talmud, and he gives us a beautiful framework for understanding these stories. I'm going to share my screen so that we can jump right in. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Um, we're going to skip that for a second. Nice block of text from Rambam. Let's do this. This is text 3a. And let's ask. Let us ask. Um, Ariella, are you up to reading? Awesome. Rabbi, is this in the Mishnah Torah? This is found in Pirush HaMishnayos. 
So this is going to be in his, in Maimonides' commentary on the Mishnah. So Rambam wrote Halachic Works, which is the Mishnah Torah, as you mentioned. Um, he also wrote a commentary on the actual Mishnayot, on an actual Mishnah. So this is in his, um, in his uh, commentary on the Mishnah. All right, Ariella, take it away, please. Okay. The words of the sages of blessed memory are differently interpreted by three groups of people. The first group accepts the teachings in their simple, literal sense and does not think that they contain any hidden meaning at all. They believe all sorts of impossibilities to be not only possibilities, but absolute inevitabilities. The members of this group are lacking in wisdom. One can only be painted at their... Oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> I don't have my glass. One can only be pained at their foolishness. Their effort and intention to honor and to exalt the sages actually humiliates them. As God lives, this group destroys the glory of the Torah and dims its radiance, for its members interpret God's Torah opposite of its intention. For he said in his perfect Torah that the Torah will demonstrate your wisdom and your intelligence in the eyes of the nations, who will hear all these statutes and say, this great nation is indeed wise and intelligent, Deuteronomy 4.6. But this group expounds the teachings of our sages in such a way that causes other nations that hear them to say, this inferior nation is indeed foolish and ignoble. Is that the second group consists of persons who, having read or heard the words of the sages, understand them according to their simple literal sense and believe that the sages intended nothing other than the literal meaning. They then declare the sages to be fools, hold them to contempt, and slander what does not deserve to be slandered. This is an accursed group because they attempt to con contest people of established greatness exalted sages whose wisdom has been established in the eyes of the wise. So let me paraphrase. Maimonides writes beautifully, but let me paraphrase in, in maybe a simpler way. So Maimonides is saying there are three groups. We've only presented two so far. There are three ways to understand the words of our sages, like in these stories that we read about, you know, the waves and all that stuff. So he says, group number one says, no, 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 they meant it literally. No, Rabbi Babrachana was literally traveling with an Arab merchant and they encountered giant desert corpses that were intoxicated, lying on their back with their knees bent. The guy that I was with went under on a camel with his spear, didn't touch it. I cut off the corner that sits it, couldn't move, gave it back, and then we continued on our journey. And yet that actually happened. I know the guy, he's a good rabbi. So Maimani says, now you're making Judaism silly. Okay, and the second group is people who read that also take it literally and say, you see these rabbis? They're out of their mind. They're mashuga. They're crazy. Who needs Judaism? Who needs scholarship? The rabbis are out of their minds. I'm done with all of this. Maimani says that both of these groups are missing the mark. By the way, both of them are taking the words of the sages literally, by the way, right? And they're both missing the mark. The one who takes it literally and says, no, 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 this actually happened with this rabbi is just being foolish. The one who says that I take it literally and therefore this rabbi is wrong is also foolish because as we'll see in option three, that's not what's going on. So let's see the third way to understand the words of our sages. And this of course will be 
the correct way and the guiding principle of this very series. Text 3b. Ariel, if you don't mind, please read this one as well. Okay. There is a third group. Its members are those to whom the greatness of our sages is clear. They, rec they recognize the superiority of the sages' intelligence from the greater body of their teachings that points to exceedingly profound truths. It is clear to them that the words of the sages contain both an obvious and a hidden meaning. Thus, whenever the sages spoke of things that seem impossible, they were employing the style of riddle and parable, which is the method of truly great thinkers. If you belong to the third group, when you encounter a teaching which conflicts with the reason, you will pause, consider it, and realize that this must be a riddle or a parable. You will anxiously try to grasp its logic and its expression so that you may find its intellectual in intention and honest truth. Thank you. That sounds like a reasonable approach. We know that these rabbis were off the charts brilliant because Read the rest of the Talmud. The same Rabbi Barachana is, 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 is expounding on the deepest ideas of Torah. So when he tells you that the way to work with waves that have fiery white stuff at its crest is by taking a stick engraved with the words, I will be what I will be, um, etc., and you hit it, and that's how you repel the wave, when you encounter that story, here's what you know. There's a deeper idea being, being referenced here. And the deeper idea is going to contain some of the deepest truths that, as we'll see by the end of today's class, can only be shared by way of riddle and parable. This was the way of the greats. The great ancient philosophers, not just Jewish philosophers, the great ancient philosophers, put any philosophers here, anyone who studied philosophy? You study philosophy, you know that the great philosophers put some of their greatest teachings in the form of parables and riddles, right? Stories that you have to decode and uncover. For what purpose? Again, we'll speak about that by the end of the class. But Maimonides says, God forbid to take one of these outlandish stories and then defend it as literal. Or take the outlandish stories as literal and then throw out the rabbis and the Talmud in the process. Rather, recognize who they were, recognize that there's profound wisdom here, and proceed to discover and uncover the deeper messages. Uh, my friends, that's what we're doing in this course. That's literally what we're doing. We're taking these stories, we're going to be taking these stories and exposing the deeper truth. I need to, uh, a quick word of clarification. Maimonides is only writing this regarding the stories of our sages in the Talmud and other such, such works. The Torah itself we understand, has a literal meaning. Ein mikra yotzei midei pshuto. There's, a, there's a, um, a classic principle in Judaism and Torah scholarship that a verse in Torah, in the five books of Moses, a verse in Torah always has a literal meaning as well. But in the, in the words of our sages, as printed in the Talmud, that's already something else. And there we can understand that the stuff that's outlandish is a parable, is a riddle, is maybe a metaphor, an analogy for us to, 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 to dive into and then to pull out the, 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 the nuggets of wisdom. All right, so with this in mind, with permission from Maimonides to continue, for, for, with permission from Maimonides to understand these stories, not literally, but in their intended fashion, we will proceed going through each of the three tales that we cited before, one at a time, to decode 
the real meaning of the story. Everything I tell you tonight, everything I will tell you in the subsequent two sessions, is all based on classic Talmudic commentaries. The classic commentaries and the spiritual commentaries, the mystical commentaries. We're talking about the Marsha, classic biblical commentary, classic Talmudic commentary. The Gra, we're going to be talking about um, the Vilna Gon. We'll be talking about Hasidic philosophy, the Chabad Rebbe's. We're going to mix and combine classic scholars from all walks of Jewish life to explain the most enigmatic stories of the Talmud. Let's begin. Let me just pause here for a moment. Any questions on, every, on anything that I just said up until now? Any questions on what I said up until now? Was it that clear? I'm not that clear, typically. Yeah, does it make sense? Sort of, yes. Okay, All right, bottom line is, these stories are not literal. These stories are metaphors. Let's unpack them. Let's jump in. All right, let me share my screen and let's jump into story number one. Tale number one, you probably remember this. We're going to break this down one part at a time, one piece at a time. So tale one, tale one, part A. I'm going to read this. Rabbah said, this is Rabbah Barbarachana. Rabbah said, seafarers told me, the wave that sinks a ship appears to have a fringe of white fire at its crest. Again, understanding that this is not what happened when he was schmoozing with a bunch of uh, seafarers, but rather a metaphor, a parable, a riddle. So now we understand that the wave is not a wave, the ship is not a ship, the white fire is not white fire, right? It's, it's, it's metaphor. So I want to ask you the question. Right? I want to ask you a question. What do you think the ship is? What's a ship? What's a ship at sea with waves that could sink a ship? If you were thinking metaphorically, again, I want to break down the first half right here. The wave that sinks a ship. So what's a ship and what's a wave? Think about a ship in the sea on a journey and a wave that can sink the ship, not literally but metaphorically. And I stopped sharing for a moment. What do you think that is? What could a ship be? Maybe he's talking about the Torah. Okay, could be Torah. What else? One's home. One's home. Good. What else? Troubled times. Say it again, Marjan. Troubled times. Troubled times. Good. And who's the ship? Yourself. Good. 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 So maybe, just maybe, the ship is a man, is a person, right? And we're traveling this life and we're out at sea. And sometimes it's calm, but sometimes this life can be a little bit, I don't know what I'm doing over there with my hands, but a little bit, uh, a little bit precarious, a little bit dangerous, right? The waves come and threaten to capsize the ship. Raise of hand. Have you ever encountered a moment in your life where you felt that things were a little bit overwhelming? Yes, raise your hand. If you're not raising your hand, it's just because you're just not, you just don't want to do this, right? Everyone's had that, right? Everyone's in that space. We've all had that. Where life felt overwhelming. But what's the biggest challenges of life? What are the biggest challenges? One could argue that the greatest challenges of life are not the waves that come from outside, but the waves that come from the inside. 
It's not what happens to us necessarily, but it's the feelings that we have inside that could harm us the most. It's the feelings of anxiety, the, fear, the, the, the feelings of fear, the feelings of sadness, the feelings of temptation, the feelings of jealousy or anger or laziness, etc., that could topple us, that could upset the ship, our ship. In other words, stated in perhaps simpler terms, the greatest challenge to our good health and well-being, not to minimize external challenges because they are real, but perhaps one could argue the greatest challenges are the ones that come from the inside, the ones that we produce, the ones that are in our heads and hearts and in our own spaces, our inner spaces. Somebody once told me, speaking about themselves, that the greatest the most dangerous place on earth are the, are the few inches between this side of my head and this side of my head, right? My own mind, right, is, is sometimes the most dangerous place to be. And that's, and that's a truth of life. A truth of life is that it's difficult to navigate life. It's difficult to sail the ship of life because of the internal challenges that we all have. So... This is on a deeper level. By the way, everything that I'm telling you is, this is, I believe, let me just double check the source. This is all coming from the, um, the gra. Okay, this is all coming from the gra. We're going to have him soon in the bio. Um, give me a second. Yeah, the Vilnagon. The Great Gon of Vilna. Anybody familiar with the Vilna Gon? Yes? Okay. The Vilna Gon. This, everything I'm sharing with you now is from his commentary on the Talmud. So he says that what is the greatest challenge? The greatest challenge is inside. The greatest challenge is our own temptations, our own challenges, whether they're psychological, emotional, spiritual, it doesn't matter. It's all that inner voice that tries to take us down. Self-defeating voices. Are we talking about the Yetzirah? Yes, basically. In other words. But sometimes Yetzirah sounds like this very spiritual term. And I want to say Yetzirah, Yetzirah is another word for something that you and I know that doesn't even have a label, doesn't need a label, because we know it from the inside out. We know what it's like to be afraid to move, and we don't move because of fear. We know what it's like to be so jealous that we can't think straight. We know what it's like to be sad to the point that we don't feel like getting out of bed, right? We know all these emotions, right? And we know what it feels like to be spiritually tempted in, 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 or, or physically tempted to go to places where we know better, we should, where we know we shouldn't go. We know what it's like. All of it, yes, would be loosely termed Sahara, which actually is perfect. Thank you for sharing that term because the very next text that I wanted to share actually uses that term, so it's perfect. Um, okay, you know what, let's ask, uh, let's see, who do we have here? Um, let's ask Fran, are you up to reading? All right, awesome. Fran, please read, let me just find out which text. Text number four, this is coming from Chovot Halavavot. Take it away, please. 
be aware that your arch enemy in this world is your own yaxer, which is embedded in yourself and woven in your spirit, which partners with you in both your physical and spiritual senses. If you leave your matters in its control and you follow its desires, it will not let up until it destroys you and both this and the next world. Therefore, let no other war distract you from this war, no battlefield from this battlefield. Allow not the sword of one far away to divert your attention from the sword of he who never leaves. That, thank you. That last paragraph, wow. Talk about something that we need to print and put on somewhere in our homes that we can look at constantly, right? Let no other war distract you from this war, no battlefield from this battlefield. Allow not the sword of one far away to divert your attention from the sword of he who never leaves you, i.e. the internal sword, the internal dangers. Because as dangerous as some external um, foe, enemy, whatever you want to call it is, it's what's inside that proves to be the most challenging. It's the inside stuff that trips us up the most. And we know this. You don't need me to tell. We all know this. We know it without needing to process it logically because we've all been there. We know it from experience. So this is the wave. The, 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 the most devastating wave are not the waves from outside. It's the waves from inside. But I want to go back to the story because that's not all that Rabbah said. Take a look. Rabbah said, seafarers told me, oh, one second, who are seafarers? Once, in, in a physical sense, who are the seafarers? Help me out here. Huh? Yeah, but, okay, but, but seafarers, when he says seafarers told me, who would the seafarers be? People who experience home. Say, say it again? People who leave their home. Okay, good. What else? What else? Seafarers. The wise ones, the more experienced ones. The experienced ones. The seafarers means the, the people with a little bit of experience under their belt. In other words, the people that have lived a few years. Not, not the newbies. Not the, not the fresh, you know, first time out on a ship. Not, not the teenagers. But people with life experience have told me that's who the seafarers are. He's not talking about boats or the sea or seafarers. He's talking about life itself. This is the most real talk. This is not, uh, for all apologies to, the, to other parts of the Talmud, this is not one cow goring another cow. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's not what this is. This is how, you live, how we live our lives. This is real life. Not that that isn't, again, I'm not knocking it, that's major stuff, but this is personal. This is, this is you and me. So, he says, seafarers told me, those with a little bit of seafaring experience, those who have been around the block a few times have told me. The wave that sinks a ship, and we said the wave, the worst wave, the most, not the worst, the most devastating wave is the ones from the inside. But the one that sinks a ship, the one that really is devastating, you know which ones those are? Those are the ones that appear to have a fringe of white fire at its crest. What do you think that means? A fringe? What do you think the white fire is? What do you think white fire is? What does white connote? What does white symbolize? What's white in Judaism? White. Innocence. Innocence. Purity. Think Yom Kippur, right? We dress in white. Innocence. You know what the most devastating internal stuff is? It's the stuff that looks... Finish the sentence. Good. Innocent. Innocent. Good. Holy. That's the most challenging, the stuff that presents itself as, 
Oh, this is a good thing. Those are the most devastating challenges. The ones that present themselves with a halo, those are the worst. And what he's essentially, if again, if we were to just cut through all the metaphor, all the, all the parable, all of the kind of the deeper ways of the philosophical talk and just speak, just straight, just direct talk. See, here's what I would say. This is going to sound familiar because for those of you that are in our Sunday morning Kabbalah group because it's what we talk about every week. The most challenging stuff is the stuff that we justify. It's the stuff that we say, yeah, I deserve it. Yeah, I deserve it. Sure. Or, yeah, only this one time. No big deal. Just this once. Or, everyone's doing it. Or, no one's going to find out. Does these excuses sound familiar? Yeah. You know why we do this in our minds? No one knows. Only we know. You know why we do this? Because otherwise, it wouldn't get past the checkpoint of, is this okay? It wouldn't get past the checkpoint. We would say, okay, I want to do this. No, that's, that's not okay. So we say, no, 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 hold on. Let me get past this checkpoint. Let me, let me create a way that's going to clear and devastate the boat for a second. Let me create that, fire, that white fire, um, that white fire at its crest. Let me create this halo of piety. No, 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 no. Look, look, look. Usually it's not good. But in this case, it's a good thing. In this case, it's a mitzvah, actually. It's actually what I should be doing. Or, um, you know, they, I, they deserve it, so it's, it's, I'm justified to do it. Whatever the rationalization, the rationale is, whatever the justification is, it's all about putting a halo, putting a, in the words of Rabbi Barachana, it's putting a fringe of white fire at its, at its crest. It's all about making it look fancier, schmancier than it is. It's making it look acceptable. It's dressing up the Yetzirah in a suit and tie, if that's your thing, right? It's dressing it up. There's a great <laughs> teaching from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. This is like, um, in his, the Rebbe wrote in 19, I think, 43, before he became formally the Rebbe. Um, but he wrote a, a book with daily wisdom, like a, a, a spiritual thought, you know, a, an empowering thought, Jewish thought for each day of the, of the Jewish year. And he took it from, you know, from the teachings of the, you know, Hasidic, Hasidic teachings. So one day, I forget which day, and I'm going to paraphrase because I don't remember the exact words, but it's along these lines of what we're talking about. He's like, don't expect your evil inclination to come at you like a raging ox, you know, like with clearly defined as, hey, this is a bad thing, let's do it. That's not how it works. It's going to come at you dressed you know, with a towel, a prayer shawl, dressed, you know, with a fur hat, whatever, like dressed like a, like a very shtissel-looking Jew. You know shtissel? You guys know shtissel, right? It's going to look very shtissely. If you don't know shtissel, then it's okay also. But it's going to look very pious. It's going to look very religious. That's how the, the, the challenge comes at us from the inside, which is why it gets past the checkpoint. So if we put it all together, what's Rabbi saying? What's he saying? People who have lived a minute or two have told me the greatest challenges in life are the ones that come from inside and that appear holy. It's very hard to battle the inner stuff, especially when it puts on a cloak of piety and wears a halo to boot. It's very hard, but that's where we have to be on guard. That's where we have to be vigilant. That's where we have to be attentive. It's not the outside stuff. Outside stuff is a waste of time. I mean, 
not always, but like outside stuff is outside stuff. The question is what's going on inside? Today, of course, we're all about wellness, right? Mental health, emotional health. The world has come around to this place of understanding that what goes on inside is the most important. It's not what's outside that's most important, it's what's inside. What's inside our system is the most important factor in our wellness, in our well-being. And this is what Rabbi was teaching us 1,700 years ago. You read the story and you're like, yeah, come on. Really? Talking about waves with white fire? Beating it back with a stick? Which reminds me to talk about the stick. Because there is an antidote that Rabba shares. And so let's try to figure out what that is. What's with the stick? And what's inscribed on the stick? All right, so um, we did some of these texts. Um, the Yetzer assumes the appearance of a kindly individual. All right, that's the appearance. Um, let's continue. All right, here we... Um, Okay, so I just want to do this before we move on. Figure 1.1, um, Rabbah said, this is to reimagine Rabbah's words in, in more precise language. Sages or wise people or people with experience told me, the challenge, impulse, evil inclination that sinks a person appears to have goodness, innocence, peace, and purity at its crest. Okay, that's the, pro that's the challenge, right? What's the antidote? Let's continue with part B of this story. So Rabbah continues. The wave subsides. How do you quell? How do you quiet? How do you put down the wave? It subsides when stricken with a club on which is engraved the words, I shall be what I shall be. God or Ka, the Lord of hosts, Amen, Amen, Selah. What does that mean? What's the club and what are these words that are engraved? So let me share with you the insight. Let me share with you the insight. What is, so two of the greatest challenges to our inner health and to our good deeds, the challenge of, give me one second, it's the challenge of feeling alone and the challenge of despairing from a potentially better future. When a person feels alone, they're very vulnerable. Forget a person. When you and I feel alone, we're very vulnerable. When you and I feel like there's no hope, we feel very vulnerable. And when we're vulnerable, we are ripe for the attacks of the inner waves. That's when the Yetzirah pounces. That's when the, the, the negative, all the negative stuff jumps at us when we're feeling vulnerable. So when we're, which is why, by the way, parenthetically, when do infomercials run? Think about it. When do infomercials run? At night. Why at night? Well, maybe you could argue because there's no programming and you can just buy slots. That's true. But there's also another reason. Because psycho... Huh? Sorry? Insomnia. Insomnia. But when a person is more vulnerable, they're more likely to make a purchase that they would... They're more likely to act in a way that is not as rational as when they were less vulnerable, if that makes sense. In other words, the more vulnerable, the less rational we act, and we're more likely to get ourselves into a predicament, in a negative predicament, that we wouldn't have if we weren't so vulnerable. So late at night, we can't fall asleep. We feel alone. It's dark. It's a little gloomy. It's a little scary. It's a little frightening. And we have Ron Popeil. Remember Ron Popeil? You remember Ron Popeil? Yes? 
Ron Popeil. Google him, you'll remember him. If you're, you know, if you're, if you're new to this whole television thing, maybe you won't. But Ron Popeil, right? He had like dozens of infomercials under his belt. Anyway, 2 a.m., Ron Popeil is going to sell you a set of knives. And if you act now, he's going to throw in this mini chopper that's going to chop the vegetables without chopping your fingers, right? And he's going to make it just really amazing for us all. That's what's going to happen. And that happens at 2 a.m. And you know why that happens at 2 a.m.? Because at 2 a.m., we're a little more vulnerable. And because we're more vulnerable, yeah, we're more likely to buy what he's selling. So what is the antidote to feel a little less alone, to feel a little less despair? And so what do you write on the club? What's the club? The club is what we're using to fight back against the inner demons or the inner dark spaces that we might get stuck in. So what's the antidote number one? I'm going to share my screen again. What's the first thing you inscribe on the stick? I shall be what I shall be. Eh, yeah, sure, eh, yeah. Where's that from? Unmute yourself if you can tell it's me where from that... from the burning bush. Hashem... Uh, oh, good, good, beautiful. Well stated, Jay. God says to Moses at the burning bush, redeem the people, go to Moses, let my people go, all that jazz. And Moses says, yeah, the people, the Jewish people are going to ask me, what's your name? I don't even know what to say. God says, I will be what I will be. What does that mean? You know what it means? I will be what I will be means that I am with them now as I will always be with them. You go back to the Jewish people. When they ask you, what's my name? I know what they mean. Uh, it's like, where's God all this time? Tell them I am with them. Tell them I've always been with them. Tell them I will always be with them. And now they're going to see it with their eyes. I've always been with you, says God, but now you're going to see it. So what's the first thing you inscribe in your club, right? To battle back the inner demons, God is with me. Hashem is with me. I am not alone. The first dark space that we can get into is a feeling of loneliness. And the first antidote is, I am not alone. Because, eh, yeah, sure, eh, yeah, God says, I will be what I will be, which means I am with you. And I will always be with you. And the second point is not to despair. Not to despair. There is a better time ahead, and that is alluded to. In the second, in the second statement, the yud God's name, Ka, which also comes from the idea of God's promise of salvation, of redemption. As you see over here, from Rabbi Elio of Vilna. I'm going to read this text, text number seven. This is the Vilna Gon, kind of culminating our um, analysis, and here's how, what he writes. We as a nation have two assurances. The first is that even while we are in exile, God will come to our rescue during times of duress. As it is stated, even while they are in the land of their enemies, I will not despise them, nor will I reject them so as to destroy them. And he promises, God promises that I am with him in his distress. God is with each of us when we are in, when we are in pain. Thus, when the Jews were in Egypt, God assured them that his name is I shall be what I shall be. The sages explain that this particular name implies I, I shall be with them during this exile. I shall be with them in all future exiles. In other words, we are never alone. God says, I am with you. The second is God's assurance to redeem us from our exile. In other words, don't despair. There is light at the end of the tunnel. Regarding this assurance, we were given a guarantee, as the verse says, for God swears by the throne of 
Ka. I'm not going to pronounce it as written because that's God's name. Ka. On this, our sages comment the usage of Ka, which constitutes the first two letters of the four-letter tetragrammaton. God's four-letter name in this context implies that neither God's name nor throne is complete until he redeems us. In other words, again, this is all kind of uh, rabbinic talk and, and a little bit of mystical and coded talk. But if we were to cut through and just speak like uh, you and I typically speak, we would say, message number one on your to go through life and to survive the inner challenges, you need to carry a big stick. Oh, hey, why don't you just say hi? If you want to say hi, just jump up. There we go. Reva's here. So if you want to navigate, if you want to successfully navigate life and all the inner stuff, all of the stuff that can be challenging, you got to know two things. Number one, you're never alone. Number two, there's always light at the end of the tunnel. That's it. Those two things. Those two things. And how do we know this? Because the Torah tells us. Oh, you have a nickel. Nice. Right. There you go. So God tells us this. God tells us. This. And you also need a nickel. You need a club with some inscriptions and a nickel just in case. You know, just in case, you know. Everybody, yeah. Do, do, don't we consider that the antidote for the Satan is the Torah? When the Satan is coming at you, you should improve, increase your Torah learning. Yes. Yes. Torah learning is a key. Which, by the way, we're studying Torah tonight. So infomercials and other stuff be gone. Um, but, and I have to tell you a, a great story about, about Satan in a second. But yes, the club is also likened to Torah study. But it's really Torah themes that come up with Torah study. And again, the two major themes that are inscribed in your Torah study stick are, number one, Hashem is with me, I'm not alone. Um, if you want to get even more like you know, new agey, you could be like, others are with me who are creating the divine image. So Hashem is with me and, and representatives are with me from, uh, 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 from, from, from Hashem. So that's one thing, I'm never alone. And number two, better times are ahead. If I believe that I can navigate. So it's almost like be believing in your truth brings it about. Or believing in this truth makes it happen. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If I believe that I'm not alone, if I believe that there's light at the end of the tunnel, I will keep fighting the good fight. I will not despair. I will not give up. I will keep on fighting. And I will push back that wave. It's when I give up that the wave can threaten to overwhelm. Uh, just a, uh, a, a, You mentioned, Jay, you mentioned Satan, Satan, which is a Hebrew word. I have to, I have to say this. So Satan, Satan comes to God one day and says, I'm not getting any business. I'm going over to people and saying, hey, come to the dark side. And they're like, what's your name? I'm like, Satan, Satan. They're like, Nope. Sorry, I got it wrong. I got this really important call coming in. So God says, okay, change your name. Instead of Satan, I want you to call yourself um, uh, the angel of death. So angel of death, that's not going to work either, angel of death. He comes back a, a few hours later and says, I tried angel of death. That's even worse. All right, so how about changing it to Yetzirah, evil inclination? Okay, evil inclination. So he knocks on the door, evil inclination here. What do you want? I'm evil inclination. Not buying. Comes back to God and says, no one's listening. I'm evil inclination. They go through this a bunch of iterations. Ultimately, God says, try this new name. Self. I. <laughs> and that's it. And that's where the Eight Sahara is today. Different forms. Different, right? But it's all the inside. It's the ego, right? It's the ego. It's the self. It's the I that gets us into the trouble. Edging God out is what ego stands for. All right. Back to our stories. So this is, let's put it together. We have two more stories. And I want to make sure we get both in because these will, these will knock your socks off. So story number one is in the books. This is probably the most elaborate explanation. Story number one is in the books. It's a story about waves with white fire at their crest. 
that could threaten the, the ship at sea, and we beat it back with a stick that's inscribed with all these words. And this short story, the bottom line is, we're all traveling on that sea of life. And there are waves all around us, and there are waves inside of us. And it appears as a white fire at its crest. It appears all halo-y and beautiful. But it's the same evil inclination. It says, I, I want, I need, but it's the angel of death. It's Satan. It's the same stuff, just with different packages. It's all marketing, right? The world is all marketing. So we have to know what it is, number one, and know how to battle it with Torah, self-confidence, no despair, and hope for better times ahead. Okay, that's story number one. Let's, let's, uh, let's move on to tale number two. Okay, we're moving quick into this. This will blow you away because I, I personally, I'm just going to tell you personally, when I read all three stories, the middle story, the one with the desert corpse, the giant desert intoxicated corpses with the knee, that was like, there's no way to explain that one. That's like, nope, super skeptical. That will never make sense. Hold my LaCroix as we do this. All right. That's my, that's my hold my beer equivalent. Hold my beer as we pull this one off, and you will be like, this is amazing. Sign me up for more Talmud study. Don't worry, we got two more weeks. All right, here we go, here we go. Take a look, take a look right here. Uh, let, me, let me bring this up again. We're gonna read it back inside. Oh, so nice, waves. Um, okay, fishy, the, oh no, I'm sorry. No, I just, I jumped the shark or whatever the expression is. No puns intended. Um, I, I jumped too far. Let's, the second story is about the fishy island. We're going to save the desert corpses for last. Okay, let's do the fishy island. Let's reset the story. Let's reset the story. Um, okay, here we go. Tale two. We were once traveling. We read it before. I'm going to read it again. We were once traveling on board a ship and saw a fish whose back was covered with sand out of which grass grew. Thinking it was an island of dry land, we disembarked and baked and cooked upon it. When the, so they didn't know it was a fish. When the fish's back became hot from the heat of the fire, turned over, had not our ship been nearby, we would have drowned. So here's a, also like a crazy story about tra- seafarers who end up on an island, and the island is a desert island, but it's not a desert island because it's actually a fish, and then it flips over, and they were rescued by the fact that the ship was nearby. What's going on? What does it mean? So I want to share with you this truth about... Jewish history. Because as traveling a ship is a personal experience, we've also traveled the ship together in Jewish history. And many times we have disembarked on islands. We have disembarked in places in various countries. And we became comfortable. And we became um, very confident. We became perhaps self-assured or assured that everything would be okay. Not only did we disembark, we baked and cooked upon it. We thought that this place would be different. We thought that we would be safe in this place. And what happens inevitably? This is the story of Jewish history. At some point, what happens? Help me out here, guys. What happens? Safe haven turns into a... The safe haven turns into what it turns into. I just want to tell you this. You look at the numbers and the stats in Europe between the Second Temple's destruction. So like, I mean, the Second Temple was destroyed in the year 69. So we're talking about, let's say roughly, you know, the second or third century of the Common Era until 1948. There was on average an expulsion of Jews from a country every 21 years. Every 21 years. 
But the Talmud is specifically referring to one incident that is a good reminder of this sad but very important to realize truth. And the Talmud is referring to the context of one of my favorite Jewish holidays, which is the holiday of Purim. Right? Remember Purim, the holiday of Purim? So what happened? Purim is the one that has Haman as the bad guy with the groggers and the booze, right? Oh, there's booze and there's also booze, right? Two... All right, if you're with me, right? Okay, so Purim, we wore costumes. So what happened in the story of Purim? What happened was the Jews were living under the rule of the Persian Empire. And in the Persian Empire, things were relatively going well. Somebody unmute yourself and tell me, what happened at the beginning of the Purim story? How does the book of Esther, how does the Megillah open up? What are the Jews doing at the beginning of the story? Where are they? Feasting. They're partying. At whose party? Whose party? They, the Jews got an invite to the royal feast. Now, one second. What does that mean for the Jew to get an invitation to the royal feast? Help me out here. What does that mean? Acceptance. You've been accepted, yeah. You're part of the club. Oh my God, you're no longer the Jew. You're like the Jew. Come. All Jews welcome. Everybody welcome. Jews are welcome also. This is great. This is like when the country clubs, right, started opening up to Jews. It's like, oh my, we can join now? We can golf with you? We don't have to open up our own? That's fantastic. That's great. We're being accepted. That's lovely. And so guess where the Jews went at the beginning of the, of the book of Esther? Where'd they go? They went to the party. And how did they feel at the party? You know how they felt? Made in the shade. We're on the island. We're accepted. We're grilling. and We're not even doing the grilling. The king's doing the grilling. We're just eating his food. We got the little drinks with the umbrella. You with me on that? The umbrella drinks. Next level. Next level drinks. We got the pina colada, the strawberry daiquiris. We got the whatever it is. We got this. It's going great. We're chilling on Achashverosh's dime. He's paying for it. We're hobnobbing with everybody else. This is great. Jews are finally accepted by the nation, by the, 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 by the, uh, the dominant empire of the world. What could possibly go wrong? What happens in the next, well, a few scenes later, cue to the next major scene, what happens? There's a decree against the Jewish people, men, women, and children. I need to share with you the following text from the Talmud. Take a look. Take a look at this one. Text 8, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the reading because I just want to make sure that we're good with time over here. Text 8, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the great Rashbi, was asked by his disciples, why were the Jews of that generation of Purim deserving of annihilation? You tell me, Rabbi Shimon responded. Because they enjoyed the feast of the evil king Ahasuerosh, they answered. That's what the Talmud says. Deserving is a very harsh word. God forbid to, for me to say why any tragedy or potential tragedy befell a certain person or, or a group of people. But this is not me. I'm, we're just studying Talmud. The Talmud, the great Talmudic sages, had a bit of an insight. I mean, they lived not that long after the story of Purim. 
I mean, a few hundred years, but they were relatively closer in proximity to the story. They had an insight what happened. What was the problem? They enjoyed the feast of the king. Well, what's wrong with enjoying the feast of the king? Because it wasn't kosher food. They had kosher food there. He, he was very accommodating. It's like Delta, you know, on an international flight. You want to order a kosher meal? You got a kosher meal. Yeah. So what if it's still frozen? It's still kosher, right? It's a long flight. It'll thaw out. They're always frozen. They're always apologizing. I'm sorry. It just didn't. All right. I'll take, they asked me, you want the chicken or the fish? I'll say, I'll take the ice, because it's going to be ice. I mean, either way, it's going to be ice. Okay? Is anything okay? Oh, that's me now. <laughs> yeah, a, Jew, a waiter at a Jewish restaurant comes over. What do they say? Is anything okay? Jews are hard, thank you, Jay. Um, Jews are very hard to please. That's the reality. Is anything okay? The answer is no, it's cold. Take it back. Here's the deal. They ate kosher. So what does the Talmud mean? Look at the Talmud again. What does the Talmud mean? Because they, they ate from the feast? No, it's not because they ate from the feast. Because they enjoyed the feast. And you know why they enjoyed it? Because they felt that they were secure. Because they felt that this was a king, Achashverosh, that they could rely on. And they said to God, you know what? We don't actually need you anymore. Because we're comfortable. Because we got Persia. Because we got America. Or, oh, did I go too far? Because we, we got it. We're in with the crew. We don't need God. We don't need Judaism. We don't need Torah because we're in with the crew. We got a made in the shade. Cue to the next scene. Haman sending out letters. He's stamping letters, sending them out across man, woman, and child, Jew. God forbid annihilated one day. It took a, a spiritual revolution at Mort, led by Mordechai and Esther to bring everyone back into, into a good space. What's the point? Not to, God forbid, predict doom and gloom. Of course not. That's not the intention. The point is simply to say that Jews historically, listen, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. We've seen the story play out. We go to a country. We become more German than the Germans. I mean, this is not even that long ago. 70 years, 75 years, 80 years ago. The Jews felt of any country in the world, Germany is the most secure. After all, we're running businesses. We're the top scientists. We're the top musicians, right? How, what could possibly go wrong? We're so entrenched and embedded in German society. How could anything turn? Not predicting doom and gloom, just taking a bit of a history course in Jewish history. Because what happens inevitably is at some point we realize that we've been barbecuing on the back of a fish. That what we thought was stable is not so stable. And if you poke it, or if it feels like it's poked, at some point it's going to say, Arais, which is Yiddish for, out you go. And so what's the secret to our, um, our endurance? What's the secret to our survival? The fact that we had the boat nearby. What's the boat? This time, it'll be Torah. The boat is the boat of Torah. Thank God we've had our faith, our tradition nearby, not too far. I mean, we weren't on it, but it's, you know, we just swim a little bit. We got it, at least, thank God, have Torah, we'll travel. By the way, the only thing that we've had consistently throughout our travels over the last 2,000 years is Torah, not gefilte fish. You know, some Jews in some countries don't even know what gefilte fish is. I've checked their Jew card. They're legitimately Jewish, but they don't know what gefilte fish is. So it's not the cuisine that unites us. It's not the language that unites us. It's not the clothing that unites us. What unites us throughout time, throughout space, is Torah, Judaism. So that's the message of Rabbi Rabbi He says, I was once, let's go back to the story and we'll reread it again. Um, I love this story. It's so, it's powerful. 
All right, here's the story. This is tale two. We were traveling on board a ship and we saw a fish whose back was covered with sand out of which grass grew, thinking it was an island. We disembarked and baked and cooked upon it. When the fish's back became hot, it turned over, it flipped us off. Had, our ship not, uh, had, had not our ship been nearby, we would have drowned. And this is the story of Jewish history. It's not some sort of outlandish sea tale. That's not, as, as Rambam says, Maimonides, please don't learn it like that. You're either sounding foolish or you're going to get angry. Both of them are not the right response. Just look with a bit of a deeper lens. It's talking about survival. It's talking about Jewish history. It's talking about not being too self-assured. It's always remembering where, who we are. It's not losing our roots and foundation. It's not giving too much credit to the fish because a fish is a fish. And that's, and, that's what, and that's what it is. All right, so that's, that's tale number two. I want to do tale number three because that's what we're doing. We're doing three tales. Um, the one that I told you is right here. Text 10 from the Marsha. See that Marsha? This is the Marsha, one of the great Talmudic commentaries. He explains this story, right? How we not return to the boat and recognize that we're still in exile and we need divine protection. We would have drowned in the sea of exile. Okay, fine. Good, that's what we explained. Next, final story. This is, okay, this is what I was saying before. This is the wildest, most out there story. This is probably going to be like a huge, huge drop of like info. Like just mind-blowing info. Let's do it together. Tale 3, part A. I'm going to do all the readings here just for the sake of, uh, of time. Tale 3, part A. Rabba Barbachana, same guy says, we, were, we said this before, reading it again. We were once traveling in a desert accompanied by an, an Arab merchant. So we're going to soon see what a desert is, what an Arab merchant is. He said to me, come, I will show you the dead of the wilderness. Okay, what's that? I went and saw them. They looked as if intoxicated and they rested on their backs. Let's go through this one, one, one thing at a time. But I first want to ask you one question. Who are the dead of the wilderness? Who do you know? that were considered to be the dead of the wilderness? Israelites. It, which right. ones? The well, when they were in the desert. Oh, the 40 the, all the years they were in the desert. Excellent. The ones who died, that original generation of Jews who left with the Exodus, who died out in the wilderness. What, are, what about the plains of Dura? Um, who are those? <laughs> <laughs> so this is going back. OG desert. Desert corpses. These are the Jews of that generation that died in the desert. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to flip this into like high gear, move a little bit quickly. So Halt Cup, stay with me. I'm going to mix Kabbalah and, and everything is going to be mixed together in one thing to give you the story. Why did they die out in the desert? The simple answer is because they didn't want to go into Israel. Why not? They were scared. Why were they scared? Because they didn't believe that God could... Let them into the land? No. That's not why. Because they were afraid of leaving the spiritual cocoon. Leaving the spiritual beauty that was the desert life that they were living. Think about it. They woke up every day and what did they do? Nothing. Other than, other than studying Torah and praying and meditating. That's it. Did they have to go to work? Those 40 years? No. Did they have to be farmers and get, pull food out of the ground? 
No. Did they have to go to the supermarket? No. Buy new clothes? No. No physical worries. Everything was taken care of. Everything was taken care for them. They had no material worries. All they had to do, all they were doing was spiritual preoccupation, spiritual stuff. And they were happy. And they were absolutely happy. Everything is taken care of. All I need to do is plug in spiritually, and that's it. These are called the intoxicated. They were drunk, spiritually drunk. They were high spiritually. They were, you know, intoxicated. You know, wine intoxicates. Yayin, the numerology of yayin, wine, is 70, which is the same numerology as sod, which is secret. The spiritual secrets. They were drunk on spirituality. They were high on God. And they did not want to go into that land of Israel. And so there we have, I'm going to go back to the story, there we have... Traveling in the desert, the rabbi and an Arab merchant. And the merchant says, I will show you the dead of the wilderness. Why were they dead? Because they didn't want to go anywhere. And they were intoxicated, resting on their backs, resting on their backs. And where were they looking? If you lie down on your back, what are you looking up at? At the heavens. These were people who were all about the spiritual. They didn't want to go into Israel. They didn't want to become farmers. Farmers? I'm going to have to put on overalls and start plowing and planting and, and pruning or whatever else for I need this in my life? No way. I'm staying right here, drunk on God in the desert, just living life and enjoying the spirituality. And the knee of one of them was raised and the merchant passed beneath the knee while riding on a camel with a spear held upright, yet he did not touch it. You know what a merchant is? A merchant is someone who buys and sells in Kabbalah. Look at text 11. A merchant is one who facilitates the, trans the transfer of goods from the property of one to the property of another. This is a metaphor for a Jew who is involved in mitzvah performance who facilitates the transfer of physical objects from the realm of the mundane to the realm of the holy. A merchant is someone who's buying and selling, moving domains, someone who does a mitzvah. With a physical item of the world, someone who elevates the mundane to the holy or brings the holy down to earth. So the merchant, the one who is in Israel, the one who is doing a physical mitzvah, being a farmer like a mensch, someone who is involved in the nitty-gritty of life, is on a camel with a spear and still can't touch the back of the knee, the, the, the back of the knee of these desert giants, so spiritual they were. From a spiritual perspective, they were the ultimate of the ultimate. But from a purpose perspective, they missed the point. Because the point of life was not to remain intoxicated on God in the desert, lying on your back, chilling, uh, and, and not doing anything. The purpose of life is to go into Israel, to go into the earth, to go into the land, to go into material reality and make a difference there. It's to go into business and be a mensch in business. It's not just to seclude yourself in isolation in a desert amongst clouds of glory and mana from heaven, but it's getting a job, it's going to work, it's becoming one with the world and then lifting it up and bringing heaven down to earth. That's the tachlis. That's the ultimate. So what happens? Rabbas goes and he sees how giant these are, so he cuts off the corner of their tzitzit. He says, I want a piece of that. 
The tzitzit, of course, have the tchelet, the blue thread. Back in the day, the blue thread reminds us of God, spirituality. Rabbah says, the great rabbi says, I also want to be like them. And then he froze. You know why he froze? Because when we're consumed with our own spirituality, when we don't make a difference in the world, yes, we make some progress, but not leaps and bounds. When we stay in the desert, we don't move. We wander for 40 years. Until he handed back the fringe, the corner of the tzitzit, the corner of the garment, and then he was able to move. You know why? Because it's when we decide to commit ourselves to making a difference in this world that we truly grow by leaps and bounds. We truly move. We become a halchim, movers and shakers and goers. We become leapers, not lepers, leapers who make a difference. So yes, from a, an ideal spiritual perspective, the desert corpses had a good idea, but they're not so moving what's it. So the yeah. significance of him being an Arab merchant as opposed that's, to a fellow yet? That's a good question. Why an Arab merchant? My understanding is that an Arab merchant is not necessarily saying not, not a yid, yes a yid, but more like the Arab merchants were really the ones that were buying and selling back in the day in that context. They were the ones that were really doing a lot of transactions. So if you wanted to evoke this notion of transactional Judaism, the idea where, and I don't know if that's a phrase, I may be coining it now in this context for the first time, but transactional Judaism meaning that I'm not on a mountaintop meditating. I'm not in a desert just you know, surrounded by clouds, but I'm in the world. I got a job. I'm, I'm, I'm meeting with people. I'm, I'm, I'm down to earth. But in that earth, I'm eating a meal. I'm not fasting all day. But in that meal, I'm making it holy. In that interaction, I'm making it holy. In that business deal, I do it honestly. Right? That's when we make that transaction. That's when heaven and earth kiss finally. That's when we, we switch domains. Heaven becomes into, integrating the earth and the earth becomes a little bit more heavenly. That's when we do that merchant stuff that we're doing. And that's when we move. And so Rabbi Barakhan is teaching us a lesson in life. We could opt for the desert life. We could be like those, those, no, those not gnomes, those, um, those desert dwellers who are on their backs, intoxicated in a good way with God, just lying and, and focusing on, on the spiritual. We could be like that. But then we'd be missing out on the magic of life. We'd be missing out on our purpose for why we're here. Because at that point, we would be frozen forever. We would be stuck. We would be very spiritual. We would be giants. But we would be stuck. When are we not stuck? When do we begin to move? When we turn to the mission for which we were placed here. Not to escape this reality, but to transform the reality. We put our heads down. Of course, we give ourselves moments of escape, prayer and Torah study, to get out of the rat race, right? But we put ourselves to the task at hand, to make a difference in this world, to make this world a home for God, a theme that we had prominently in our last course, then we create the transformation. That's when the magic happens. That's when we begin to move once again. And so we have three stories. On the surface, you could have read these stories. You and I, I could have read these stories a thousand times. And every time it would sound outlandish, bizarre, nonsensical. And as Maimani says, I could have thought, I could have defended, yeah, no, it actually happened. Or I could have said, you know what, this is ridiculous, I'm out. But Maimonides encourages, encouraged us to look deeper. Because the same rabbis that shared the deepest, brilliant legal thoughts also are teaching us the most brilliant personal thoughts. Life lessons. 
Not legal lessons, life lessons. And so tonight we had three life lessons. Number one, always be careful from the inner demons, from the inner challenges. Fight it with positivity, hope, and light. Lesson number one. Lesson number two, never become too self-assured where you are. Always maintain an anchor to your faith and your tradition. And lesson number three, God didn't put us here. God didn't put me here to relax. God put us here to work, to transform, and to make a difference. Three lessons, each of them priceless gems, each of them encoded in the curious tales of the Talmud. But why encode them? Why not just say it? A few reasons. Number one, it's nowhere near as fun. <laughs> number two, it's nowhere near as engaging. And number three, and this is probably the most important part of it, a lot of these insights touch upon the mystical parts of Judaism. And as you may know, in those days, it wasn't taught to everybody. Kabbalah, Kabbalah was not taught to everybody. So Jewish law, yes, but Jewish mysticism, only a secret group. So how did they express themselves in the Talmud? Through the hidden stories. If you knew, you knew. How do we know today? Because by today, uh, 15, 16, 700 years later, Kabbalah is more widespread, and we have the commentaries that decoded it for us. Thank God. So now we're able to envision what they intended. Bottom line is, Rabbi Barbachana teaches us about life, about inner challenges, about outer challenges, and about our purpose in living. May we all take these lessons, apply it to our lives, and make this world a beautiful place. Thank you for joining. I want to share with you what's coming up next week. Next, thank you. Next week, when God prayed, this is going to be a study in the art of anthropomorphism, which is the art of ascribing human qualities to God. What is going on in these Talmudic stories, which we'll see next week, that describe God in human-like terms? What is the deeper meaning? As we know, based on tonight, there's, there are deeper meanings. Priceless life lessons. I can't wait to join next week with you to doing this. All right, my friends, we'll see you then. A quick announcement this Sunday. Join us for Escape from Cairo, the true story of a man who was taught as a young boy to hate Jews in Israel, who ultimately became and has become an advocate for human rights, Jewish rights, Israeli rights, incredibly um, uh, inspiring. Join us Sunday, June 20th at 8, uh, sorry, at 7 p.m. It's online on Zoom, intownjewishacademy.org slash escape. Join us for that coming up Sunday. We'll see you all soon. If you know, also one more thing. If you know somebody who, will, who would enjoy this course, let them know. Because don't, it would be a shame to hold it, keep it to ourselves. You know, I'm, I'm sure everybody knows a few people that might really enjoy this course. So share the info. It's great to see you all. All right. Any final words or questions? Uh, Rabbi, real quickly, I just yeah. want, I could be, this could be completely off, but I know my grandmother, when she used to tell us the old stories, when we asked her about why are there always the Arabs in the desert, she explained to us that because in those old stories, often in the Middle East, the Arabs were the ones that gave the basic directions. Nice. They were the ones who told you, you go this way to get to Palestine, this way to get to Turkey. Right. And they're just simply there to 
give the um, superficial direction versus nice. what, cool. what we would see. That's, that's what you said. Yeah, and, and maybe, maybe on a simple level, they were just the ones that were out there in the crossroads as the merchants and as the direction givers. So maybe that's why it's used as a phrase as opposed to, um, you know, not specifically, you know, a, a non-Jewish context, but just more of the, of the frequent. Good. Thank you for sharing that. All right. Other questions or comments? Or are we good? Just looking around, scanning, scanning, scanning. Anything, everything good? All right. Great to see you all. It is a pleasure and an honor to see you all to be continued next week. All right. Have a wonderful week. Thank you all. Shavua Tov. Thank you to our sponsors, Deborah and Joel, Jay and Susan, and Eve. Thank you very much for sponsoring this course and for being part of it and for all of you for being part of it. Todah We'll see you guys soon. Take care.